The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Do I have it on that? Yeah. Good morning, and thank you. Um, it's good to be back here. Uh, I have, um, uh, I'm used to attending for many years the Sunday mornings here, and um, haven't been for a while, so it's really nice to be back here. Um, what I wanted to talk about is the practice of shifting our attention. Um, it's something we do all the time, most of the time unconsciously, um, but what we're doing in our mindfulness practice is learning how to shift our attention consciously. Um, <clears throat> first, I just want to um, review a little bit about a simple way of talking about mindfulness, so we were on the same page. Um, mindfulness can be said to be being aware of what's going on in the present moment with a steady, clear, non-judgmental attitude. Um, and we all know how to be mindful. You know, right this moment, can you all pay attention to this moment, not distracted? Or are you, you know, paying attention to, oh, I'm too warm, or thinking about um, some conversation this morning? Are you paying attention to the person knitting in the corner over here? Just, just checking if you're paying attention. <laughs> um, so paying attention and being mindful is, is one part of what we teach in Buddhist practice. The other part is the quality with which we pay attention with. For instance, a, mind, um, uh, a bank robber could be paying very careful attention to every little click as they turn and every little sound. They could be relaxed. They could be completely non-judgmental of how long it's taking them to do it and you know how um, elegantly they're doing it. Um, but they're still, they're not caring about anybody else. And what makes mindfulness, wise mindfulness, is caring about ourselves and others. That quality of having goodwill towards ourselves and others is what transforms a simple act of knowing what's going on and being efficient and functional uh, to an act that's much richer in our lives. Um, we learn to shift our attention every time when we meditate, every time we bring our mind back to the breath. That's what we're doing. We're going from distracted to the breath, distracted to the breath, or maybe a compelling experience, we shift our attention to it. We have a knee pain. So we make that the object of our attention, carefully paying attention. But it's still, how are we paying attention? Are we paying attention to that darn knee pain, I wish it would go away, or are we paying attention to that knee pain with an attitude of compassion and uh, an attitude of curiosity? So the way we shift our attention is really crucial. As we bring our attention back to the breath, do we rush back to it because we messed up and got distracted, or do we come back to the breath kindly and gently? Ah, here we are again. We're home again. Um, one of the reasons that mindfulness has become so popular is that mindfulness practice um, makes you do anything you do better. 
So if you play music, uh, the more mindful you are, the better you play, the less distracted you get. You don't worry so much about your performance, but your mind is focused in the present moment. Uh, if you play sports, um, uh, focusing at work, studying in school. Most people who've been practicing mindfulness um, are, are very happy to find out that regardless of why they started, they do so many things that they do in their life so much better. But doing things better is not what makes us happy. It might make us more successful. It might make us more functional. So what makes us happy is that when we do things in our life, we do them with an attitude of caring, an attitude of caring for ourselves and others. Um, um, For instance... um, one of the things that, um, let's say you're at work, okay, and you've been given like a three-hour deadline, you've got 22 things to do in those three hours, Um, and it's really going to be tight. So on one hand, in the first scenario, you look at the situation, you go, wow, that's really going to be tight, I'm going to do my best, I'm really determined to try to go through these 22 things and getting them done. And I'm energized, you know, by the situation, and I'm stable, my attention's focused, and I may, not, I may not do it. I may not accomplish it. I may not finish on time. But that's how I work. The second scenario is instead of focusing on the job at hand, my mind goes to the future. Oh, no, what if, what if I don't finish? They're going to be so disappointed. This person's going to be so upset. Of course, wasting precious moments instead of focusing on your work and focusing on your fears. And now, on top of that, those thoughts make you anxious. And so instead of the mind being clear and steady and focused, the mind now is very agitated. And so you force yourself back to the work and you try to do it, but all, all these fears of the future creeping in and you're tense and uptight, and you still may not finish on time. The only thing that's different in the two situations is whether where you gave attention. If you gave attention to the moment or to the future. And that practice of living our life in the present moment instead of shooting off to the future or regretting the past is what this practice does as we develop it. This turning the attention uh, to the future is a habit of mind or to the past, whatever, whatever the preference is. And in the same way that we develop habits, like biting our nails, you know, you didn't, as a baby, you, know, you, didn't, you didn't bite your nails. It took a while to bite your nails. So it's a habit we develop for, for different reasons. And the f- habit of turning the mind to the future is no different than just any other habit. And what mindfulness practice does on the cushion and off the cushion is develop the habit of coming back to here, to here, to here. Um, so the reason I'm giving this talk, actually, you know, when I was uh, trying to figure out what I was going to talk about today, is that I like to look at my life um, and see what the edge of my practice is, where I'm being challenged, 
and um, and I usually like to spend some time and reflect on it, and and you know I like to spend at least a week on and off thinking about it uh, because it's such a valuable learning experience for me. Um, but as um, my life is right now, the actual challenge of my life right now is that I have no time to do things like that. <laughs> and um, for those of you who know me, uh, the last two and a half years of my life have revolved around the creation of the Inside Retreat Center. And I've been a full-time volunteer uh, from the beginning of purchasing it, getting our permits, um, you know, learning about the septic system, you know, one of the things on my bucket list, of course. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, working with contractors and figuring out how to run the place, with, which is run by volunteers with no staff. Uh, so it's been a really um, amazing journey. You know, now we've had about seven retreats, uh, and it's still continuing because there's still a lot to do there. Um, and I found myself busier than I ever was when I was working full-time. And, in fact, going for weeks without a day off, um, uh, you know, kind of dropping a lot of the things in my life. And, and my life before uh, was a very... Uh, I, I made it um, a very conscious choice when I graduated college to make a life that was really balanced that really held to my values. So I never worked more than like a three and a half hour stretch without a two hour lunch and, um, and a four day week. And you know, I, I worked for myself, so I had that luxury of doing that. Uh, so you know, my life has always had this really nice natural sense of spaciousness. And uh, the last two and a half years haven't done that. And so even though, you know, my practice has been very established and developed, I found myself, instead of being at ease some of the time, I would just be functional. This is next, this is next. You know, I have what I call my endless list. You know, it doesn't matter what I check off, more things get added at the other end. And, um, and I found, I noticed that um, when my husband would talk to me, I felt he was interrupting me. And, you know, friends would call, you know, another interruption. And uh, I found that I wasn't calling friends back for a week. You know, sorry, Elena. <laughs> and, and Mark, you know, two people I haven't called here. Um, uh, after, you know, so, so it's just something I was never used to doing that. I've always responded. And, um, and I found my life kind of narrow because of that and kind of um, uh, tight. And... Um, and so it became a challenge for me um, to reestablish and realign myself while I was still that crazy busy, not sleeping well, not, ha- not sleeping enough hours, you know, and, and trying to find the balance of that. Um, even though meditation was a refuge, the rest of the time it seemed like I couldn't afford to take time to do anything but function. But getting things done is very important, and a lot of people depend on it. But getting things done out of my inspiration for, the, for this wonderful thing I've been working on is even more important. And shifting my attention from getting things done 
to getting things done for the benefit of myself included and for this wonderful community here and for all the generations in the future transforms my, my to-do list into um, a work that's much more joyful. Um, and so the edge of my practice has been this realigning to this, to this center of doing this out of inspiration and, and staying connected with that inspiration without needing a lot of extra time to cultivate the environment I want. Um, so, you know, this week, for instance, when the contractor, you know, I found out they... Um, uh, they put in the wrong floor. <laughs> they put in, um, in, in the walking meditation hall, they put in, you know, we put a cork floor in there so it'd be nice for walking. And they put in um, the cheap imitation of the real thing. Uh, so it's still cork, but it was just a much, much lower quality product. And so it was really interesting, you know, when I was talking to him, you know, and, and feeling realigned, re-inspired, you know, really considering as I was telling him that he had to do something about it, that I didn't close my heart to him, that, you know, I cared about his well-being, even though I still needed him to do what he needed to do. And that was really important, you know, to, to, uh, to be able to maintain that sense even when I had a li- another list of ten things that I needed him to do. Um, so that was my inspiration for this talk. <laughs> so what we pay attention to, um, when we are sitting in meditation, we not only want to remember that, oh yeah, bring the attention back to the breath, but we want to remember to do so in a peaceful and relaxed manner. I see sometimes people meditating with a big frown on their face because they're trying so hard to concentrate. And, you know, and eventually, even if you concentrate that way, you'll eventually relax because the attention being guided will help settle down. But learning to bring the attention in a kind, relaxed manner, oh yeah, drifted, yep, coming right back, you know, but in a really nice, friendly manner, you know, escorting somebody across the street, you know, with that same quality. Um, So that's shifting the attention towards something, towards the breath, over and over. But there are times when it's helpful to consciously shift the attention away from something. And um, for instance, if you're walking on a narrow cliff, okay, and um, and fear rises. I don't know if any of you have had that experience, you know, like start shaking. And, and um, what's really useful at that time is not, at, oh, yeah, fear, this is what's happening. Yeah, that does, it's not too helpful. What you want to pay attention to is where you're placing your feet. And so you're moving away from the compelling object, which is the fear. That's what's practical. That's what's useful. It's one of the things I learned um, uh, in working with pain. Um, you know, I had a history of pain, uh, chronic pain from childhood, and I was used to um, running away from it, meaning that um, running, I, um, uh, running would kick up my endorphins and the pain would go away. It was wonderful. And so for years, you know, ju- you know I just managed it by not thinking about it. Uh, but at one point, um, you know, and I'd already been meditating, uh, the pain got worse. 
And my normal, uh, I had to stop running actually, and my normal meditation practice uh, actually taught me to keep focusing on what was most compelling, which was the pain, which meant I would sit for 45 minutes focused on pain, which is not a pleasant experience. It's not the same when you have an itch that goes away in a couple of minutes. And I found that my practice became something I wasn't enjoying anymore. Um, and um, the person who really helped me with this, is, she says she was a Zen teacher, um, she died in the last couple of years, is Darlene Cohen. And she was someone who had suffered with rheumatoid arthritis all her life. Uh, and um, she talked about pain as only one of the thousands or hundreds of thousands of things we can pay attention to at any given point. I mean, anybody who's had even like a really bad headache, uh, you've probably know that if you're in the midst of a conversation, you, you somehow got distracted from it because your mind had paid attention to something else. And so in the same way, I learned to, instead of focusing constantly on the pain, of letting something else be bigger than the pain. And so that my attention became my full body and the pain was just one piece of that. If we keep paying attention to something, we magnetize to it over and over, which works really great when we do that with the breath and we condition ourselves to, to, you know, to come back to the breath. It can be really useful. But when we do it to something um, unuseful like pain uh, or negative thinking, like for instance, a lot of depressive thoughts are just really the same thought, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough, you know, and just going back and forth to the same thought. Uh, so by changing, consciously changing your focus, oh, not good enough, ah, not useful, let me go here. You know, it's not a matter of, of saying, oh, I shouldn't have that thought, or I shouldn't have those feelings, but it's a matter of, go, of really recognizing that's not where you want to pay attention. It's okay that it's there and shifting our attention to where it's useful to pay attention to. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the other ways that I've uh, fo- worked with um, changing the focus of my attention that was really helpful is with shyness. Um, I always, you know, I liked small little groups of people, no more than four or five, and hated parties, you know, or any large social event, which, you know, in my work I had to periodically attend these these kind of professional gatherings, you know. And it always felt uncomfortable and awkward, and, um, you know, and I didn't drink, so I didn't even have the cocktail in my hand to to make it easier. And, and, um, and, you know, and I, and I, thought about it, you know, and I realized, you know, uh, I wanted to try something different. And so what I did was I changed the focus from paying attention to how uncomfortable and awkward I felt uh, to, is there someone in here who I could make feel better? You know, and so I went from being concerned with my own feelings to caring for somebody else. And even within, without any other change than that, I just approached someone who, who was alone and looked a little awkward, and I started asking them questions. And, uh, and to my delight, I had a really nice evening that night. And I didn't really, wasn't that, it's not that all the awkwardness and all the, you know, went away, but uh, I was able to engage in the situation by caring for others, by, by my focus being elsewhere. And it's just, it's a very simple focus, 
you know, and I've worked with, with a number of people who are shy or uncomfortable in doing this, and, and most of them reported the same thing, that by shifting their focus from their own uh, feelings of, of um, awkwardness or, uncomfort or discomfort, they were able to um, actually care for other people and engage and connect. Um, Another way that we, uh, in meditation, one of the ways we play with changing our focus is how many of you have experienced uh, restlessness in meditation? Okay. Any of you have experienced like restlessness where like you really feel like you're just crawling out of your skin, you know, and, and you know, something's got to give, you know. And when um, people ask me, you know, how do you deal with restlessness? What do you do with it, you know? And one of the... Um, uh, metaphors that I love is the metaphor of wild horses. You know, you th- if you put wild horses in a little tiny corral and try to keep them in there, you know, they go crazy. I mean, they're just really unhappy. But you put them in a large pasture, you know, and they're just dancing. You know, it's just their dance. They're having a wonderful time. And... Um, in the same way, when we try to corral the mind really tight, you know, and, and it's really, really restless, um, it, it can be really, just be really uncomfortable. And so we open the attention to include a much bigger field. It might be including your whole body, or for some people it's, it can really be helpful to just listen to sounds. You know, sounds really expands the, the pasture for, that, for those uh, uh, really bucking horses in your mind, you know. So, uh, you know, it just make it big, you know. It's one of the methods, but it's, it's a way of really just sh- you shift your attention from the small to the big, to the large, expansive feeling. Um, so... Um, I'll give you one more um, example of uh, changing the focus. Um, Many years ago at a business seminar, um, it was actually, the topic was public speaking. And the teacher, he was like an international um, uh, speaker. He'd been doing this for, you know, uh, for at least a couple of decades. And he told us about how he had learned to do public speaking. And so um, he went, you know, the, he went to a seminar on it, and they said that the the two top fears uh, that people have are fear of death and fear of public speaking. <laughs> um, and so, you know, acknowledging, you know, how how common that is. And um, so, you know, they taught him how to relax his body, you know, how, you know, taking a deep breath relaxing his body, but primarily they taught him to take the attention from himself and how he felt and put the attention on the audience. In fact, one of the things that some people recommend, I've never tried it, is um, to imagine the audience naked. You know, uh, I would find that really distracting, you know, so... (laughs) Um, But, you know, for instance, it's it's really, instead of paying how am I performing, to, um, you know... uh, what, what can I give them? You know, how can they, you know, what can I, caring about the audience? And that kind of attitude allows you to take off the attention off your own 
nervousness and insecurity. The other thing they taught him, they said, well, you know, uh, people, if you're not using notes and you're standing without a podium, you know, uh, a lot of people are really uncomfortable with, with their hands just hanging there. You know, they don't know what to do with their hands. They said, just put them in your pockets. And then they, they said, you know, and also, you know, just, you know, as he's leaving the seminar, make sure you always, you know, uh, relieve yourself in the bathroom before you go speak. So, so you know, you're not jittery when you're uh, speaking. So he went to give his first public talk. And there were 60 people in the room, and he's standing in front of the room. You know, he's, you know, a little nervous. He takes a deep breath, relaxes, puts his hands in his pocket, and, you know, thinks about the audience and just smiles. And, and to his delight, he was just absolutely relaxed and, and just started talking, you know, really comfortable, you know, and, you know, it had really worked really well, you know. And then he's looking around, noticing then nobody's looking at him. In fact, everybody's eyes are averted, you know, and, you know, and he gets a little distracted by that, and he notices, you know, person in the front row is like looking right at his fly. And um, he, you know, looks down, and of course his fly is wide open. He just gone to the bathroom and very relaxedly forgot to zip it. <laughs> and he got so upset, he peed right there, and ran out of the room. That was his first public talk, <laughs> which shows his character of perseverance. <laughs> uh, but he did notice that all, all the methods worked. <laughs> but the devil's in the details, right? <laughs> um, um, so... So one more thing, you know, one more example of changing focus. Um, I was working with a student um, who um, I was mentoring her um, and with her mindfulness practice. And one of the big obstacles in her life was she had this huge pile on her desk. Any of you have that? That kind of this desk that's just really an outrageous monster? You know, some of you identify, right? And, um, you know, in all the years of mindfulness and practice, you know, she just, you know, this was her pile. She just couldn't deal with it. You know, every once in a while, especially when something important got, you know, misplaced, she would force herself to dig through some of it and, you know, get only so far, you know, enough to handle the current emergency. But then it just never changed, you know. And she'd walk by the desk just kind of disgusted and disappointed in herself. And, and it just never got better. So I, I made a suggestion to her. And the suggestion is, was to make this an exercise, a mindfulness exercise she did every day. She, every time she went by the desk, uh, she would pick up one piece of paper only, or one, one object, and deal with it. And that she would view the pile as her altar. So this was her altar to mindfulness, and she would come and deal with one paper. Now, this one paper, the first thing she picked up, you know, was um, an old PG&E bill, you know, that had been paid, fortunately. And, you know, she held it in her hand, you know, and as I told her, treat it just the way you normally treat an object of mindfulness. What happens when you treat it? You want to, you know, here you've got this object, uh, you have to decide what to do with it, what's going on inside you. And she just had anxiety about it. What do I do with it? 
you know, how do I make this decision? Do I keep it or throw it away? What do you do with an old PG&E bill? How many of you keep it? Okay, how many of you throw it away? Okay, recycle, yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you. So, but that decision of whether to keep it or throw it away was, gave her anxiety. She, and as she looked deeper, she found that just making decisions make, gave her anxiety. Decisions are unpleasant. They have an unpleasant quality. They take effort. And that decision for her um, meant that if she made the wrong decision, she failed. And so every time she saw a piece of paper, it was an indication of a possible failure. No wonder that pile was there. And it, she found that with every paper that she had to make a decision on, she had this sinking feeling that she was going to make the wrong decision. And so with facing this process, that every day, just one piece of paper and enough mindfulness to really deal with her emotions around it, she was able to learn to accept the fact that she would regularly make the wrong decision and that that was okay, that she could live with that. Um, and so slowly she was able to transform this into her real altar, you know, where she was able to deal with this, with this stuff that came in. So it was a really wonderful practice. And if anybody hasn't tried it, you know, I, I, well, you know, I suggest it. I think it's great. Um, So the last thing that I want to say about this is that when we shift our attention, um, it can be done skillfully or it can be done unskillfully. And um, we want to turn towards something without making what we're turning away from wrong, without pushing it away. If we push away what we're turning from, we repress it, it goes inside us, it hurts us. Uh, repression is never good. So if, we're, for instance, um, uh, we're, we're at a job interview and uh, the person interviewing us is being really unpleasant, you know, we have anger arising, you know, yeah, we don't want to, this is not the time to attend our anger, you know, this is the time to be super polite. But if we repress those emotions, um, you know, and make them wrong and just shove them inside and not actually ever deal with them, they'll show up elsewhere. Um, they, they're, so in the moment, we hold it aside and we go, yeah, anger, deal with you later. You know, now I'm going to focus on being as polite as I can be, in, you know, at this interview. Um, it's the same thing when working with pain you know with chronic pain like one of the things I hated my pain you know and it was only when I learned to be to accept that it was there that I was able to again to shift my attention elsewhere in a healthy manner Um, so one example is um how many of you are familiar with loving-kindness practice? Many of you? Yeah, good. So loving-kindness practice is a practice of um, cultivating the heart, cultivating our goodwill. And it's a practice where we give our attention to uh, wishes of goodwill towards ourselves. Uh, we start with uh, a mentor, someone we, who's helped us. Uh, who we feel good about, we expand it to our friends and family, uh, to people we 
for neutral towards, and then at some point to what they like to call or enemy, um, which I prefer to call the, my difficult person. Um, uh, and so, you know, to me, that was an incredible challenge to even begin to consider having goodwill towards this difficult person who I really disliked. Um, and the practice felt unauthentic to me. You know, so how do I shift from really disliking this person and, and thinking really not nice thoughts about them to having goodwill towards them without feeling phony? And so it was a very um, interesting process for me uh, to understand that I could actually have uh, not like all these qualities about this person. I could dislike a whole bunch of stuff about this person, uh, but that I could also wish them well. And what, was, what really helped is to realize that if they were actually well and happy, they wouldn't be such a jerk. You know, <laughs> so that... that that was like the beginning of seeing that, that, that they had something in them uh, that, that was lovable, regardless of how contracted and, and, um, uh, and unpleasant their personality was, that there was something within them that was worth loving. Um, and that's how that broke through, and I could do a loving-kindness practice towards them without denying that I didn't like those qualities about them. And so it became a much more authentic practice instead of how it appeared to me like kind of a um, a false positivity, which I really didn't like. Um, I don't know if any of you have, have had that, ex- you know, those initial reaction to metta practice, you know, but it was very hard for me to um, find my way through it because it seemed like it was... Uh, way too syrupy and, and sugary, you know. So I had to find some, a way to um, shift my attention to something that was real for me. And goodwill towards people, you know, it's just it's a very simple course. You know, that's, that's a very natural thing that the uncontracted heart feels. Um, so um, I'll end with that. Um, so if anybody has any comments they'd like to make or questions, uh, we've got a few minutes for that. Yes. Uh, I was listening to a talk, and uh, uh, Samedo, and he was saying that having... Um, when you don't like somebody or you really have a strong like hate or something to um, be loving practice loving kindness towards yourself as you know a person who has enmity and so that you can manage it to first be loving kind towards yourself and then perhaps it would release you know the feeling towards the person if that makes sense I may have not said it very clearly. So, so you said uh, to practice towards yourself as someone who has those uh, feelings of uh, hatefulness? Is that what you yeah, said? Yeah, like usually if I, if I really dislike someone, I feel, oh, I'm kind of upset with myself. Why can't I like that person? Or why can't I turn my heart towards that person yeah. in a more positive way? Yeah, 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 no, definitely, definitely.
You know, that's one of the things when we practice loving kindness to ourselves, we practice to the parts of ourselves that we see as unlovable. Yeah. Ines, I just wanted to say with all that you have on your never-ending list, I'm so grateful that you fit in this Dharma <laughs> Thank you. Behind you. Hi, thank you for your talk today. Um, I'm curious about, and uh, it sounds like you're still in a very busy time right now, and I can really identify with that. And I'm wondering if you found a way to still create, or what your way is to still create that space for meditation and for mindfulness, and how does that integrate in the midst of the whirlwind of activity? Well, you know, what, I, what I've always known was that it only takes a moment to remember our deepest intention and uh, to keep that at the forefront. And before when I had a life where my life reminded me to, of that, I've had to do, bring it to the moment. You know, so, um, so for me, it's just, it's just been a shift of, of rem- reminding myself more often. But in terms of depending where you are in your practice, uh, one of the things that I've done mo- you know, much of my life is um, every hour doing 10 breaths. You know? And so I had a, um, a little app on my a computer that would, you know, ring these beautiful bells every hour, you know. And I wouldn't always do it, you know, but I would do it, uh, you know, if I was in the middle of a phone call, I might take one breath, you know. <laughs> but, um, but it's something that was really, really helpful because, um, and having these special little things that help you integrate, um, you know, like, take, like taking a shower has always been like a, a place where uh, I don't distract, I just go right to my body, you know, or brushing the teeth, you know, so having these little times where you don't think ahead, where you really take, take the attention to the body. Um, uh, there's one of the things, um, uh, we did a self-retreat at home, you know, um, and I would do walking meditation down our hallway. And after the retreat, it didn't matter what I was doing, but every time I walked down that hallway, I just, my mind would automatically drop to my feet, you know, and it was, it was a wonderful way of, of staying connected. Um, and what happened with uh, this project was that a lot of those little things kind of dropped out of my life because I was just so intent on doing what's next. And, um, and it's not, I didn't necessarily go back to those things, but, but my, my shift you know, is just a lot more frequent from functional to being in my heart. So it's remembering my heart. So, so hope some of that's helpful. <laughs> Yes, over here. I uh, appreciate your talk today about the shifting of concentration, and I I could really relate to getting engaged in projects and being functional and getting caught up and engaged in that and then having a hard time breaking away so maybe if you could, I mean, you've, you've touched on it, but if you have anything more specific, you know, with uh, ways to be able to get disengaged once you've already got engaged. Yeah, 
the, the things is to have certain things put in place in your life. You know, just like, you know, if we have a time we meditate each day, uh, you know, we automatically do that regardless of how we feel. You know, so having these little places where we are always mindful. Uh, so no matter how far you go into being focused, oh, that came up. Um, one of the things I know Gil loved to do is um, when he trained himself in being mindful uh, during the day is he would um, decide to be mindful every time he walked through a doorway, which is sort of nice because whenever you walk through a doorway, you're walking into a different world, right? A different space, a different something. And so that was his practice. So throughout a day, you walk through lots of doorways, um, the practice that I used for quite a while was that every time I stood up off a chair or off a seat, which was a lot. You know, even if you're at the computer all day, you have to, you know, you have to go to the bathroom, you have to go get water, um, you get into the car, you get out of the car. So every time that I got up out of a chair, out of seating, uh, I would take a moment to just come to my body. And it doesn't take a lot of time to come to the body, but it requires that muscle to disengage from your thinking. And that ease of disengaging from, my, from the thinking is what really is the key to all this. You know, you're in the midst of all this stuff and you feel you just, you're so attached to it. You can't even go to the bathroom without uh, keep, it, keep going. But, but you find that disengaging is okay. You know, you actually don't lose any productivity by disengaging. In fact, your mind gets a rest. And you're just as productive even if even if you've completely disengaged when you, you know, when you take that little break. So there's a lot of ways to do it. You find what works in your life, you know. Um, I had, I know Andrea, you know, if I remember, Andrea Fellow who teaches here, she put little notes all over her house, <laughs> little stickies, you know. I don't know if she, you know, if she still recommends that or not, but I remember that from years ago, you know, just, you know, she'd put it like, um, you know, on the refrigerator, you know, in particular, you know, or, or just drawers you open regularly, you know. So, so there's different ways, you know, and it's nice to be playful with it, because, you know, if you're playful, you've got a light heart. And, and you want to do this practice with a light heart. You know, not take it so seriously. You know, we take it too seriously, we contract. So that's, uh, that's yeah, that's time. <laughs> I'm looking at that clock, which says 10 to 1. So um, a little disorienting. Uh, so thank you all. And... Um, uh, and I'll be around for a little while if anybody has any questions or wants to talk about the retreat center. I'm happy to answer those. Uh, so thank you.